Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Who can I get to sue someone on behalf of my license infringement? I really need that right now. I actually don't, but I'm really excited about our guest today who might be someone who would be able to help you out a tiny bit. Before I introduce them, I want to make sure you know who the other voices on this podcast. I am, of course, Richard Litauer. Hi, everyone. And also on this podcast, we have Justin Dorfman, my longtime compatriot colleague and comrade. Justin, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. And I say you're my compatriot. You're from the West Coast. It's a different country entirely. Joining us today from the East Coast, the Beast Coast, we have Karen Sandler. Karen Sandler is, of course, the ED Executive Director of the Software Freedom Conservancy, SFC. Karen, it is great to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's so exciting to do this. I love talking to both of you. So exciting to have you. We're recording this today on BBB, Big Blue Button, which is a really awesome open source software. Why do we do that today? Well, normally we use Zoom, but Karen's one of those amazing people who says, can we just not use a proprietary thing when we can use an open source one? Which I've learned over the years is actually beneficial and helpful. And it's really great to have SF Conservancy's BBB able to be used today. But part of that means that we missed my whole normal rigmarole for getting guests on this podcast. And so I don't have a bio to read for you. So, Karen, I have no idea who you are, where you come from. Can you tell me, how did you get involved in open source? I'm an engineer turned lawyer who wound up falling into the open source world. I was someone who thought that open source was really cool. And then I wound up finding out that I have an inherited heart condition. I have a really big heart called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I needed a defibrillator pacemaker implanted. And I got that. But in doing that, I started researching the safety and efficacy of this device, started looking into it. And what I found was just like appalling, shocking, as you might say, to make a terrible pun about the fact that my defibrillator has shocked me when I haven't needed it to because of its interesting algorithms. So doing that research made me think that open source was more than just this cool thing. And in fact, like we needed as a public and as individuals to have much more control over our technology and certainly more oversight than we do. And this caused me to embark on this journey of really loving a lot about software freedom and becoming activists for safer and better technology. So I'm at Software Freedom Conservancy as executive director. Previously, I was at the GNOME Foundation and before that, Software Freedom Law Center. And so I'm in mostly a non-legal role now, although I do teach a class at Columbia Law School. It's in my bio too. So all that is to say, like the main things that I do are run SFC, which includes, as you said, like promoting copyleft licenses and defending the GPL and helping alternatives to proprietary software so that we actually have other technology that we can use. So you don't have to be the one saying, no, I don't want to use Zoom or I don't want to use Google Docs without being able to say, here's something else we could use. Like Etherpad is a Software Freedom Conservancy member project, for example. And then thirdly, we run Outreachy, which is a diversity initiative where we give remote paid internships to people who are subject to systemic bias and are impacted by discrimination. And it's all part of the same thing of like, our technology may not be made for us. And what are we going to do when it's not? And how can our technology ever be made by us if it's not made by a diverse set of people? If it's not made by people who are like us, then what are, you know, if it's only by a small section of people, then how will that get us? So it's all kind of wrapped up in the same, like, what are the ethics of our software and how can we make it better? 
Thank you so much. That is a lot of information. I'm really excited about getting into it. I'm going to go back to the beginning because again, that was a lot and really cool. Engineer turned lawyer and you have a heart condition, which I, my condolences, but you seem fine. So I'm glad that you're seeming okay now. Pacemakers are put inside the body, I believe here on the right side. So you can still do the CPR stuff on the other side if you need to use a defibrillator, which is kind of really cool. I learned that on Sunday, everyone. Go get your first aid training if you haven't done it recently. Save a life. It takes like 20 minutes. But what's interesting about that is you said you realized that they weren't open source or something. How did having a heart condition lead to you saying, wait a minute, this isn't working? It's not that I was surprised that they weren't open source. I think I never would have expected it to be open source. It's just I never thought too deeply about this kind of technology until someone was saying, we have to sew it inside you and screw it into your heart. There's like a lead that goes from the device through the veins and into an artery and into your heart itself. And it screws into the heart tissue. And I never really thought about it before until it began. And my device, I'm super lucky. It was total preventative device. So it's not regularly pacing me. So it's just there listening to me going into a dangerous rhythm or they call it sudden death. And then the device would be present. And my heart condition, it turns out when I first started talking about this, I would say, oh, it's a very rare condition, but they think it's really common now. And in fact, they now think it's one in 200 people. And it's just that people don't know that they have it until potentially, especially young people, until they get into trouble. And so if you hear of like, a young person who's run a marathon or kid who's like run to second base and has a problem, often it's because of this heart condition. So burst activity can be dangerous. And since my heart is like, it's so big, it's so thick, they needed me to have this device implanted. And it wasn't super urgent because the chances at any moment that I would go into sudden death were somewhat slim. Overall, I had like a very high percentage compounding. And since I was so young, when I found out about it, it was such a long period of time. They really wanted me to get the device and I needed it. I still haven't used it. So I actually haven't, I need it theoretically. I haven't actually needed it. And so I had the luxury of being able to sit back and think about like, first it was, oh no, I'm going to get this implanted in my body. Yuck. I don't want that to happen I like ready for this. I don't even want to take medication every day. And it's a luxury when you're not finding out about this because you've had a, you feel terrible or you're in the hospital, right? I found out about it incidentally. And so I did have that ability to think intellectually about it. And I was working on open source stuff at the time. And so I said, well, this is no problem because I can find out about the device and I can ask for the source code and I can take a look at it, but maybe the companies will help me out here. But when I tried to call the companies, of course, I got nowhere. They don't want patients to review the source code. They don't want anyone to review the source code. And worse still, the processes around the software review are somewhat questionable. And so as the, I took that combination of like engineering and lawyer background and started to do a deep dive in it. And the part that really struck me about it was how the software can't be audited. I first thought it was all about auditability and that we can see it. But then as I lived with my device, I got shocked while I was pregnant unnecessarily. So I was like about a third of all women have palpitations when they're pregnant. And that happened to me. But because I had a defibrillator, the defibrillator thought I was in sudden death. So it shocked me. We're in a dangerous rhythm. So it shocked me repeatedly. And the only way I could get it to stop was by taking drugs to slow my heart rate down so much that it was tough to walk up a flight of stairs. I wrote a paper about the auditability of stuff of like why we needed to have auditability of these devices. And I thought I'd figured it all out. But suddenly when this happened to me, I was sort of like, oh no, it's not just about auditability. It's about control. It's about how is this device designed and what happens when it fails? And so 
it was a perfect example of how a very well-intentioned device, like nobody who worked on this wanted pregnant people to be getting shocked unnecessarily. <laughs> what a nightmare. Nobody wanted that. The device manufacturers, the technicians were all appalled when they heard about it. It's just that it wasn't the use case they anticipated. Only 15% of defibrillators go to people under the age of 65 at all. So when I asked my high-risk doctor, my obstetrician, just so you know, the next time you have a defibrillator patient, and this is in like one of the largest New York hospitals, and that doctor said, oh, I don't have defibrillator patients. There was you and one other in the entire time I've had this practice. And this is a high-risk obstetrician and a very high-traffic practice. And so for that reason, it wasn't a use case that was anticipated. And even if I had gotten all the pregnant people together, we couldn't necessarily be able to make those changes or advocate with the company. And over the long run, it wasn't that big of a deal. I took those drugs. They were fine. It was a difficult time, but I'm no longer pregnant, you know, and I'd stopped taking those drugs. And and I didn't spend the whole pregnancy being shocked and the baby was fine and everything was fine. It just is like, this example of how like our technology may not be made for us and it probably won't be. The more widely it is deployed in the more circumstances it's deployed, the more likely that what any individual is using that technology for will not have been an anticipated use case. So tell me about how this led you to Software Freedom Conservancy. Did it already exist beforehand or did you found it? I don't know the history on that. I think Software Freedom Conservancy existed. I'm a co-founder, so I'm the one who actually filed these preparation papers, but I did it when right. I was working at the Software Freedom Law Center. So it was actually the SFLC's idea to create Software Freedom Conservancy, and I helped do that. And so I did that a little bit in my role at Software Freedom Law Center. And then I was a volunteer after I went to the GNOME Foundation. And then eventually I switched over to being an employee at Software Freedom Conservancy. So even though I'd been involved as a volunteer for a while, it was totally different to come in as executive director. And then it's been fun because it's like also outreachy was something that I helped found at the GNOME Foundation and build up. And then it came to Software Freedom Conservancy as well. And so all of the things that I was passionate about kind of luckily wound up coming together at Software Freedom Conservancy. And it all fits together in this wonderful story about how do we look after the ethics of the technology we rely on. So tell me more about all of the different projects that you help incubate at Software Freedom Conservancy. Now, we've had Leah Silen on from NumFocus. We've had people on from Open Collective and Open Source Collective, including me, obviously although I'm no longer working there, news everyone. I'm curious, how does SFC work in that regard? Because I know you also do like lawsuits and stuff. So I'm just confused. What exactly is your mandate? Oh, I would love to tell you. So yeah, I mean, so interesting. We were one of the first fiscal sponsorship organizations. We came in after Software in the Public Interest, and they were a heavy inspiration for the way that Software Freedom Conservancy was set up but they're more of a grant model than a comprehensive fiscal sponsorship model. This may be far too in the weeds. I love nonprofit law and nonprofit related stuff. And so I can like dive deep in this stuff, which I will not do because it is like a whole different topic for probably a different audience, but it's so fun. Anyway, so slightly different. And there really was a need for a comprehensive fiscal sponsor, which means the member projects of Software Freedom Conservancy are a part of Software Freedom Conservancy. So they're like, analogous to a division in a corporation. So we are the legal entity for them as opposed to just taking in money and doing a grant type of relationship. And that means that their problems are our problems. And that really works well when you have projects that may have some complicated legal issues or other kinds of like liability related issues. But also it works out really well when there needs to be a 
deep partnership between the member project and the Software Freedom Conservancy in order to like succeed for software freedom. And so when we started, we were initially just a plain old fiscal sponsor, like taking anything that was free and open source software, like anything with a free license. So like Dump Focus, we've been very excited when more fiscal sponsors come in and we've always shared all of our documents. We give them to Dump Focus, we've given them to other organizations because let a thousand roses bloom. It was never our purpose to just be a fiscal sponsor. It was our purpose to support software freedom. So here we are down the road. We don't need to take such an active role in fiscal sponsorship because there are so many different options, Open Collective, Num Focus, tons of other organizations. And we only take member projects now that really want to advance software freedom and will benefit from our help. Speaking of lawsuits, what's going on with the Vizio? I haven't heard yeah. anything since like 2022. Yeah. So lawsuits take a really long time. And so Software Freedom Conservancy has three major branches. And because our logo is a tree and we do the Nature Conservancy logo, we have that cute little, these are our three branches. Our three branches are the fiscal sponsorship where we support alternatives to proprietary software, our diversity and inclusion initiative, and then our copyleft work. And so the lawsuit comes into our copyleft work because what we found, and one of the threads I wish would get picked up in the sustain conversation, which I haven't seen so much in the sustain it, like in the sort of like, how do we sustain open source is that the really deep thinking about licensing and whether or not how it works out to have non-copyleft licensing and copyleft licensing, how that impacts the longevity of a community and the ability to maintain the software as open source. So if software is licensed under copyleft licensing, detractors used to call it viral before viral was a good thing. The idea is that it's forever free. So if something is licensed under a copyleft license and it has distributed copyright holding, meaning you don't have one company who's acquiring assignments so that they could relicense it any way they want. If you have those two things, then that means you always have a level playing field. It means that you never lose track of the code base ability to fragment it is much more limited, you know that people are going to be able to play on the same field. And so there's something very special about copyleft. And there's something ideological about copyleft that is very motivating. And so when you can combine this inspired ideological contributions along with the keeping business in check through copyleft, I don't know that the full experiment of copyleft has ever really been tried. We've seen wild success with the Linux kernel and a few other important projects. But because of corporate interest in open source and the emphasis on non-copyleft, so many projects went non-copyleft that I think we haven't really tried that. So really, no, yeah, really quick, just not all of our listeners are going to be as familiar as we are with copyleft versus copyright. And I have always mixed my lefts and rights up. Can you describe again what those are? So there are major ways that we can license under a free and open source software license. A non-copyleft license, or some people call it permissive, or detractors will say lax permissive. Lax permissive license is one where you just, the license says you could do whatever you want. You can copy it, you can modify it, you could do whatever you want. You can even put it into a proprietary product. And most of the the open source software out there is licensed under a non-copyleft license. A copyleft license says you can do whatever you want with this. Also, you can distribute it, you can modify it, you know, you can share your changes. But if you distribute it, you have to do so under the same terms of this license. So if you make changes and you distribute those changes, you have to also keep those changes under the same license. So it's like this ever increasing 
body of software that's available for use. And that's the piece that's different. And there are other licenses in the middle. It gets a little bit more complicated. Some have patents, some don't, blah, blah, blah. That could be another topic for another day. But the main difference is that copyleft has, they call them reciprocal obligations. So if you are using a copyleft license, a company has copylefted software in its products, it has to make the source code available for the public so that if somebody wants to change that software, they can do that. And so getting back to the video suit, Vizio is one of those companies who have copylefted software in their products, multiple different kinds, but aren't fulfilling their obligations under the license. And so we have enforced in a number of different ways. We have a coalition of Linux kernel developers that have asked us to enforce their license for us. We have member projects that are copylefted that care about their licenses. But the Vizio case was actually different because in the Vizio case, we filed as a customer. So we purchased TVs. And we found that the TVs were out of compliance. We had previously had an enforcement action with Vizio and they had not given us complete and corresponding source code. And then later we got new TVs because we've been getting complaints and also because we want to do alternative firmware projects to use these. Like there's so much promise in devices where you can get access to the software because you can create alternative builds. You can do really cool stuff with them. Wait, so were you like sitting in a garage somewhere with a screwdriver trying to like, find the code in a Vizio TV? Like, how did this even come up? And why Vizio? Why not every other IoT device in the world? We get lots of reports from people who are frustrated because they get these products and they look and they either see no offer for source code or there's an offer. But when they ask the company for the software, for the source code, they don't get an answer or they get something that doesn't build or doesn't install or something, which are requirements of GPLv2, which is one of the most popular licenses that are of the copyleft licenses. And so what we do at SFC is we investigate as many of these complaints as we can, but we always prioritize people who are really trying to do something with the devices that they purchased. So that is our priority. If somebody wants their source code because they're going to replace the software to do something like prevent a company from spying on them, because a lot of these devices are sending reports back from people. Or if they want to be able to add accessibility, we've had people complain because they couldn't add captioning. So we try to prioritize the really good use cases. And so from there, then we kind of narrow it down. And we're a small organization, so we do the best that we can. And the Vizio case really made a lot of sense because it was a company that had ignored our advice and requests in order to comply. And their newer devices were out of compliance in a very dramatic way. And so that's why we filed this lawsuit. And it's different because in the past, most of these suits have all been filed on behalf of copyright holders. But we instead filed as a consumer. And we said that the copyleft licenses, they say that there are rights given to third parties. So the licenses say, if you use this code, if you use this software, you agree that you're going to give third parties this right. And under the law, there is a whole cause of action that is is raised by being a third party beneficiary to a license. So it's basically saying if two people enter an agreement and they promise a third person that they're going to do something, that third person can actually bring a lawsuit because they were specifically named in that agreement. And this is a well-trod legal theory. And so because the parties were agreeing that the public and third parties and people purchasers are the ones who have this right, we filed in that way. And it's really important that we did that because it's really the downstream recipients who are the ones who are hurt by the lack of compliance. If you buy a TV and you can't 
get access to the source code, well, then that frustrates the entire purpose of copyleft software. It's the whole point. And also it's the downstream users who are the ones who are even aware that there's no compliance. So that's why we filed it this way. The other thing is that companies tend to not take requests for source code seriously because they think there will be no consequences if they don't. But this lawsuit demonstrates that you have to really take it seriously when people are asking for source code because ultimately there's a third-party beneficiary right. And they should be doing the right thing anyway. You use this software, you agree to this contract. The software is so amazing, right? There's so many benefits that are all connected to this copyleft licensing and you can't just get all the benefits without also, you know, handling your responsibilities. And so this basically holds those companies accountable. And so that's why we brought this lawsuit in this way, which is very particular, but lawsuits take a really long time. So I'm pleased to say that in May of last year, we were able to get a really positive ruling from the federal court. So we brought it in state court. So basically, Vizio said, you brought this contract case, but really in the United States, you didn't really mean it was a contract case. What you meant was that it was really about copyright. And you may say it's about contract, but really it's about copyright. And if it's about copyright, it should be in federal court, which is maybe also very in the weeds for your audience. But it automatically goes to federal court. And then we had to fight in front of a federal judge to say, actually, there is a cause of action here. It's contract and state courts are the right place to do it. And Vizio argued, no, it belongs in federal court because it's only copyright. And by the way, we also want to dismiss it because if it's copyright, then these people filed only as a third-party beneficiary, so it should be thrown out. And the federal judge said, oh, actually, it does seem like there could be a cause of action here and remanded it back to the state. So that was actually a huge victory for us in May. But now we've been going through discovery and depositions and it'll take a while. There's a trial date at the end of the year, but whether that will stay is tough to know. We were re- The judge was reassigned. You know, it's just litigation is slow and crawling and we're just doing the best we can. So I wish we had more to talk about on it, but we're just in it for the long haul. It's just the way it is with litigation. And it's tough because it takes so many resources to fight one of these lawsuits. And a lot of the work is invisible. And whenever we're in litigation, the other side doesn't hesitate to try to run up costs or I'm not saying that's happening now. I'm just saying like, it's tough to know from our perspective. We just have to do the best we can and employ the right counsel and put in the time and hope for the best. So that's what's happening. How much do you think this has cost the SFC so far? Gosh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't know. I shouldn't have well, admitted that. Well, I mean, it's good to show. <laughs> Please donate like, now. Well, no, it's good to show like the scale and how much resources go into this because, you know, it's easy to go on Twitter and be like, yeah, I'm all about copy left and you know, just kind of running your mouth, but money talks. So this is kind of setting the tone for other companies like Vizio to just be like, hey, look, there's consequences if you're not doing it by the book. So I think a lot of people take that for granted. They just hear like court and they're like, oh, it's all pro bono stuff. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of resources. Staff time alone. And we have used pro bono litigators for some actions, but limited what you can do because you need someone who's going to be able to appear when you need them to appear and to drop everything else very difficult to do. So we have gotten some pro bono help. The staff time is immense. I mean, we work on this every day and it's in addition to all of the other stuff that we have going on. And so I find that we're often working after hours to make sure that everything is correct. And discovery is something that the United States is kind of unique in having. And I like it because it means that 
parties have to produce all the documents they have, all their email, all their conversations. But it's a lot of work to have to go through just to determine what would be answering the other side's questions. And it's not very glamorous and it doesn't get people excited. So that's tough. But we're in it for the long haul. Going to do the slog so that we can come out at the other end and do our best and see if we can get a good result for software freedom. I think people think that the GPL or copyleft licenses are magic pixie dust, as we often say. Like they think that if you license your code under a copyleft license, that's it. It's safe. It's going to be shared forever. You don't have to worry about it. But unless somebody enforces that license, it's not really any different than a permissive license. And that's the state we've been in for the last decade, I think, where companies have gotten really complacent. Because if nobody's worried about a lawsuit, then why should companies invest in making sure they do the right thing? They just won't. Yeah. And we're starting to see this a lot with AI. I see a lot of companies putting in, including my own, is we're putting in guardrails to keep GPL code out because it's such a liability. Have you been already getting complaints from copyleft authors to be like, hey, I think this LLM is using my code? I mean, we get complaints about every product you could possibly imagine. We get complaints all the time. It's amazing. And then, of course, with the assisted programming models, of course, we get the like there were all of the very high profile related examples of these models taking copylefted code and including it in programming suggestions without attribution or acknowledgement. So this is a huge problem. I mean, I think that it's so sad, the idea that companies try to exclude copylefted code in order to stay safe from liability or stay safe, I find that companies will find a way to use copylefted code when it's really valuable to them. And the truth is that all you have to do is release source code. Almost no business models rely on proprietary source code anymore. Very few are like royalty-based. If you're trying to make your revenue by locking in your customer set on a copyrighted proprietary code base, then you've already lost. You're going to make money because you're responsive to your client's needs because you've provided a platform, because there's some kind of service that you're providing, not because you've locked your customer base into an old code that they're stuck with because they can't transition out of it. So I think it's very short-sighted to do that. And I think that if we as an industry experimented a little bit more with copyleft, if we brought it in more, then I think we would have more experience with showing how publishing the source code is not this huge disaster that people think that it is. So... I look forward to seeing that. I think we will. But at the same time, unless people really understand why copyleft is so special and why it is in consumer interests to have copylefted products, I think we'll never actually get to try that experiment in a broader way. Sorry for opening up this other can of worms. Well, it actually, Justin opened it. I didn't open it. Thank you, Justin. Japan recently announced the news that they're not going to... I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how to phrase this well. Basically, they don't care about anything that goes into feeding a model for an LLM. There's no license restrictions on anything which goes to feed a large AI model. And that's really interesting to me because it feels like they're going all in, whereas everyone else is like, oh, I don't know if that's a thing. I was just curious what you thought about that as an idea. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so tricky, right? And one of the things that Software Freedom Conservancy has spoken out about a lot is Copilot. And we have a whole Give Up GitHub campaign I know that GitHub has been present a lot in the conversations around sustainability and open source, but there are a number of ways in which GitHub's participation in open source has been quite the opposite of sustainability and community, aside from the fact that it's a proprietary code hosting site. 
like all of the historical problems with GitHub. But one of the things that we were able to talk about with Copilot is this problem that I mentioned before about copylefted code being part of the training set, right? Like GitHub didn't use all the software they had access to, right? They only used what was available that was freely licensed or published on GitHub. They didn't train it on Microsoft Word or Windows, even though they had that ability. Why didn't they do that? Why do you think they wouldn't have trained it if there's no way that the output of Copilot would produce any of that source code? I don't know. And we did find that people were able to determine over time that the Copilot was including code in its output. Yeah. And so effectively, this then becomes runaround of copy left. It's like people created this code in the public good. They wanted it to be freely shared. They wanted it to stay free. And by putting it through these models as part of the training set is not a problem at all. It's just that if you're not having any attribution and the output can be proprietarized, then you've got a problem. I'm not incredibly intelligent about the law. I don't understand it. And I don't understand morals either. I know that there are things I ought to feel because I've been raised in a certain society, but I'm never sure where they match up with the law, which is what gets me really tough. So Japan deciding that anyone can use anything for any LLM is really interesting because to me, that seems to be an amoral decision because it seems to be screwing basically the people who made the code in the first place by allowing anyone to drag in it for a particular use. When the license said, well, you can't use that. But if Japan decides that, and if I'm in the jurisdiction of which Japan applies, which is an entire country with millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, then that's fine, right? So I'm just kind of curious how you feel about that and also what you think about that as someone who sits at SFC, because the same thing could happen here in the US. And in that case, like, is that a problem? Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Again, I'm not smart at phrasing this question because I don't understand the concepts very well. I guess my answer was sort of like a roundabout way of saying, how does that make me feel? It makes me feel like mad and a little helpless. Like, <laughs> I'm yeah. totally honest, because as someone who wants more access to the source code of the technology we rely on, what I want is that. I don't care about copyleft necessarily. It's a strategy to get us to that goal of software freedom. But it's so interesting because when copyright maximalism winds up sometimes hurting the goals of software freedom, but it also strengthens copyleft. If copyright is strong, then if you use copyleft as a way to keep sharing, then suddenly that copyleft is very strengthened. So I'm happy when copyright laws are reduced if it increases sharing. But what happens is the output of these models is licensed under non-sharing licenses. The extent that they can be licensed, and that is different in different places around the world, regardless of whether they can have copyright ability or not, generally the output is not being shared. And worse still, the training set is not being shared. So that means that we don't have the auditability, we don't have the checks and balances. And ultimately it means that we are going to have even less code that we can test, modify, make sure that it serves our interests instead of the companies that are using it for the technology we rely on. I have a book on my shelf here. It's called The Freedom of the Hills. It's one of the definitive mountaineering guides. If you're going to go hiking, you look in the freedom of the hills. It comes from this old expression in English, which is the freedom of the city. You used to grant citizens, distinguished citizens, the freedom of the city. It's like having the keys to Portland handed to you, right? Go and do what you can in the city. Now, in large marketplace of our global capitalist structure, having the freedom to be able to access markets and to be able to access, say, million-dollar contracts or millions of users depends upon being able to play at scale. Copy left licenses make it harder for you to publish your code and have companies use it in a way that might benefit you. 
And that might be controversial, but I'm really curious what you mean when you say software freedom. Do you mean that the software itself is going to be free or do you mean that the users using the software are free? Now, I know this has been debated ad infinitum in like the SFS type world, but I'm curious what SFC thinks about it and in particular your opinion. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I've always shied away from some of the slightly more philosophical arguments. I'm very pragmatic. From my perspective, Darn. software freedom. I mean, I'm happy to engage in philosophical arguments about it. It's just that at the end of the day, what matters is where we as a public are left with the technology we rely on, right? Like my heart device is a metaphor for the software we rely on. What happens when you're getting unnecessarily shocked and there's no way to like the technology, right? What happens when a whole community has deployed software that you're relying on and there's an exploit or there's a bug and you can't fix it? Issues around our technology are real. And we are creating these centralized structures where we're building surveillance technology into everything we do. We are ceding a tremendous amount of control to corporations. And one of the best ways of accountability that we already have is that which CopyLeft gives us. So software freedom for me is about having something we can actually do with our technology. Software freedom is, I bought this phone, I replaced my software on the phone. I was able to strip out the Google-related services, and I still have a great functioning phone with a lively ecosystem of apps that I can put on that do what I need it to do. For me, software freedom is about that control that we as a public have and whether we can take collective action together in order to do something. So I like the philosophical arguments, but in a way, they're just so beside the point because they are distracting from what rights do we have with respect to the technology that is now intimately interwoven into every aspect of our lives? If I were interested in talking more about this sort of topic, are there any conferences coming up that you might plug that where we could go to learn more about free and open source software? I'm so glad you asked. There's a conference called FOSSI, Free and Open Source Software Yearly, which was perhaps optimistically named, but I do expect it to be an annual conference. We'll see how it goes. It's a, kind of an experiment for the first year. It's sort of like, FOSDEM-like, meaning that we have tracks that are organized by volunteers and we're going to have a lot of really cool, interesting talks and we're going to be in Portland, Oregon, which is where the old OSCON used to be. So it'll be kind of a fun mashup of conferences, but it's very community-focused and community-led. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll see how it is for the first year. Like the kind of the expectation is to build it up over time. So get your ticket now and be there for the very first one. There's a sliding scale of pricing too. So like cost shouldn't be a factor for you to, to be able to attend. When this goes out, it'll be early July. So hello, everyone. Welcome to this month I haven't seen yet, but you still have time to go get your tickets. It'll be two weeks away. It's happening on the 13th until the 15th, I want to say, maybe 16th. It's Thursday through Sunday. Thursday through Sunday of that week in Portland, Oregon. I will be there. Karen will be there. It's going to be super, super exciting. And other people from Sustain as well. We plan to have a nighttime event where we're going to meet. We were going to have a big conference and then decided that we just weren't going to have the resources to make it the high quality that the past three major events were. And so we decided that the hard decision to postpone it. But if you want to talk about Fossey stuff with Sustain people or if you want to talk about Fossey stuff with SFC people, do come. It will be awesome. Karen, this has been super, super great. Don't leave yet. That was a torch of the show called Spotlight. Spotlight is where we highlight projects, people, things, which have helped us out in the past, which we think need a little bit of light put on them. Justin Dorfman, what is your spotlight today? PyCord. 
P-Y-C-O-R-D allows you to create Discord bots. I created one for SourceGraph for community stuff. And it was really simple. And yeah, they're great Python library. Thank you so much. Mine today is going to be Kevin Kelly, and in particular, Kevin Kelly's podcast that he does with Tim Ferriss. Every time I hear these, I basically want to change my entire life and do something awesome. And I'm just really grateful that people like that exist in the world. If you don't know much about Kevin Kelly, definitely worth checking out. It'd be awesome to have him on this podcast someday. I don't know how that would happen, but I just really enjoy his view on things. Go tinker, go goof off, do what you can. And so I would just suggest checking out the Tim Ferriss podcast. It's a small podcast. You may have never heard of it before. Karen, what is your spotlight today? It's funny. The thing that occurred to me is just a gratitude for the contributions of someone who died a year ago, which is kind of not the point, I guess, of this. But I'm still going to mention Marina Zurahinskaya, who founded Outreachy with me. And it's been a year since she died and she was just so wonderful. So I have to mention her just came to mind. And I think that for the thing for people to check out, I'm going to go with Tech for Forests. They're a open WRT implementation that I've just recently heard about doing really cool stuff in Brazil. Tech for Forest is awesome and there are super awesome people working there. Larida Lamos de Souza is amazing. Marcia Nobrega, amazing. They are also a digital infrastructure fund cohort T. Do check that out. Great spotlight. And I think that's pretty much the end of this podcast today. Thank you so much for listening. Listeners, don't leave yet. This is the end of the show where I talk really fast, but there's actually some cool stuff in here. So first off, discourse.sustainoss.org is where you can talk to other sustainers about things. You can also ping us on all the social medias. We're on Bastodon. We're on Twitter. I should really send up a blue sky. In the meantime, if you have any thoughts, you can email podcast at sustainoss.org and then go to all the hosts. We love hearing feedback. We've gotten some now. Thank you, people who have heard my desperate calls and pleas for feedback. It's amazing. And you're all really, really cool. If you have any guests that you want to hit this up with, just feel free to do that. Also, you can donate to this podcast. It does cost a small amount of money to make each one of these. And it'd be really cool to keep them going indefinitely. To do that, go to opencollective.com slash sustain OSS. And there is a big donate button there. I would love it if you could tell your employer to give money to us as well. It doesn't have to be your money. It just has to be cool money. And if you're interested in Karen, of course, check out sfconservancy.org or the show notes. Karen, thank you so much for being on. This was amazing. Take care. Looking forward to seeing you in July. That's it. So fun. Thank you so much. And thanks for using free and open source software. I encourage listeners to make one small choice for software freedom. 